You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. So welcome to Revolution Church. It's me again. Right? If you guys don't know me, if you're new here, I think I maybe see one or two new people. I am David Dowdy. I am the, the lead teaching pastor here at Revolution Church, and we're glad that you're here. Um, tonight we are continuing our series. I know I start every sermon off the same. This is just for the sake of those who are new and jumping in on this series. Uh, we're continuing our series called Bible Stories, subtitled Christ in the Old Testament. And we're looking at the most famous Old Testament stories and seeing how they point to Jesus. Because in the words of Jesus and in the words of the apostles, all scripture points to Jesus. And we're just seeing how that's true. Um, so tonight we're going to be continuing um, in the book of Exodus uh, with the account of the ten plagues that God struck Egypt with. Right? Last week we looked at the first nine, and this week we're looking at the tenth one and Passover and, and all that good stuff. Uh, so, so far, we have seen in the book of Exodus that Israel is in slavery to Egypt. Right? Uh, these, these guys are, are, are treated like they're not even human beings. They're, they're incredibly cruelly treated by the Egyptians. They are beaten uh, their babies are murdered. They are being oppressed by not only Pharaoh, but by all of the people in Egypt. And then the people cry out to God, and God hears them and remembers his covenant with Abraham. Whenever the Bible says that God remembers something, that means that he's getting ready to act on it. It's not that he's forgotten. It's just a way to tell us God is getting ready to act. And his covenant with Abraham that he had made was that he would give Abraham uh, and his, that he would turn Abraham's descendants into a great nation. Right? They'd, they'd be as numerous as the stars, and that became the nation of Israel. And that he would give them a land, the land of Canaan. Um, and that he would bless the nations through um, Israel, through the offspring of Abraham. Which means that the Messiah that was promised to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 would end up coming from Abraham's lineage. So he would be a Jew from the nation of Israel. Right? So that's the covenant that he made with Abraham. And he said, I'm getting ready to act on the behalf of my people who are in slavery to bring these blessings about. And to do that, God calls out a man named Moses to be his representative, right? To be a prophet for him, to speak on his behalf and be a mouthpiece for him. So he calls Moses out in the, in the burning bush account that Kelly Craft preached on a few weeks back. It's very famous. You guys should just watch the movie The Prince of Egypt. I talked about that last week. Best DreamWorks. Was that DreamWorks film? Yeah, it wasn't Pixar. It was DreamWorks. I have it at home. It's so good. Um, like the, the, I, don't, I don't like Broadway soundtracks, but like, man, that's just a good one. Um, now that you all know that I'm weird, let's continue. Um, so Moses goes to Pharaoh and demands that Israel be allowed to go to the wilderness to worship their God. Right? And we talked last week, I used God's personal name a lot. Anytime you ever see uh, all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, it's the name Yahweh in Hebrew. Right? So they, 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 Moses demands that the Israelites be allowed to go worship Yahweh in the wilderness. And Pharaoh, we saw last week, arrogantly refuses to let them go. And I believe it was chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? He says, I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let the people of Israel go. Right? So we saw him ask arrogantly and rebelliously, Who is Yahweh? And we saw in him last week that his pride and his rebellion reflects our pride and our rebellion against God. Now, any time that we sin, we're really in our hearts saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then God proceeded in the first nine plagues to reveal who he is, right? And, and we saw that he is a God of justice and mercy, that he is 
supreme above all things, that he is the authority, that he is the only God, that he, he controls everything in the world and everyone in the world. He revealed those aspects about himself in those plagues. And God teaches Pharaoh through them, and not only Pharaoh, but Israel and the whole world to fear him and to know who he is. Right? So this is a recap of what we've seen. So now we come to the final plague this week, right? which may be the most famous. This and the, and the Nile turning to blood are probably the two most famous. And it's the death of the firstborn. Right? And in this plague, just to give you a little rundown, we are going to see judgment and salvation. We're going to see grace, sacrifice, and freedom for God's people. Right? So that's what we're looking at this evening. And this passage, it's Exodus chapters 11 and 12. If you're a Bible flipper, feel free to go there. Also, if you're new with us, there are Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take one home with you. It's our gift. Um, but in, this, in these two chapters, we're going to see the biggest foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've seen in this series. It's arguably one of the biggest foreshadowings of Jesus in the entire Old Testament. Um, so as we dive into these two chapters in Exodus... What I'm, what I'm wanting us to do is I'm wanting us to, to look and see what God has done and see who God is and just be amazed and astounded at the grace of our God. All right, so cat's out of the bag. That's your application for this evening. Be astounded at the mercy and grace of our God, that he would bring us out of our slavery to sin and make us into new people, that he would make us into free people who are free to serve him and enjoy him forever. So with that, we're going to pray, and then we're going to hop into Exodus chapter 11. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, use me as an instrument to, to expound on your scripture and point people to the Savior. God, give us a, a, a holy somberness that we would reflect on these truths today and that you would break our hearts with them and then stitch us back together with the good news of Christ. So God, thank you for everything that you do for us. Thank you for everything you've done and please do a work in us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 through 10. We're just going to read essentially the whole chapter 11 of Exodus and then we're going to hop in. We're going to talk for a little bit and then hop into chapter 12. Verse 4. So Moses said, this is the last time he's going to stand before Pharaoh. Or I'm sorry, next to the last time he's going to stand before Pharaoh. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he, Moses, he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So this plague generally raises some questions for us about the nature and character and righteousness of God. 
Like, surely I'm not the only one in here that you look at this and you say, well, how is this just? What does this tell us about God? How is this all right? And that's, that's totally fine to ask those questions. I believe it was St. Augustine that says only those who doubt can truly believe. And I, I'm, I'm firmly convinced of that, right? So whenever we read the Bible, it makes sense that God would do things that, that rub us, you know, kind of grind against what we think he should do. Or he doesn't do things that we think that he should do, right? And that's because God is completely other from us. So it makes sense whenever God does something that, that kind of rubs us the wrong way, right? So always be asking questions to the Bible. And whenever you have doubts or you have questions about who God is or why he did something, talk Talk to people about it, right? So just laying that out there. Always ask questions. It's good. Um, we're not a church that wants to, like, repress your questions and beat you in the head with a copy of the King James Bible. Whatever. Um, so the first question that, that I came to, and I got, like, three or four that I, I want us to talk about, is why death? Why is death necessary from God here? Right? Often when, when we read about God punishing somebody in the Bible with death... We, we think, if we're honest with ourselves, we think, man, that's way too harsh. Do we not? Like, that's the ultimate in this life. Like, there's death, and then the only thing worse than a punishment of death is a punishment of hell. Right? So we tend to view death as being the, the most extreme punishment that God can throw on someone here, and we think that's way too harsh of God to throw on people. And I would argue the reason why we think that way is because as sinners, we forget the awfulness of sin. I would, I would totally make that argument that we that sin has become so normalized that we think you know is it really like does it, is it really deserving of God killing Pharaoh for his rebe- or Pharaoh's son for his rebellion against God? Right again, sin has become so normalized to us because we're surrounded by sin and we are sinners that we forget the awfulness, or as the Puritans would call it, the sinfulness of sin. Right, which is a funny statement. It's also a name of a book. You should check it out. Uh, it's kind of dry, but it's good. Um, but again, we, we forget this, this awfulness, how bad it is. The Bible teaches us all over the place that sin demands our death. We've rebelled against the holy God. That's, that's always what sin is. And I, and I know, listen, I'm, I'm just going to lay this out there. I say a lot of this stuff almost ad nauseum, and I get that because I can see some of your eyes glazing over whenever I start talking about, you know, the wages of sin is death, like I mean, Romans, right, and all this kind of stuff. I am convinced here, I was talking with Steve about this, not naming names. I wouldn't even say this is the majority of our congregation. But I can look out and I can see by the evidences of how a lot of people live, and I wouldn't even say the majority, but how some people live that even come to church here regularly. Not everyone in this building is a Christian. So I will, I will preach the penalty for sin. I will preach that it's deserving of death and that it's rebellion and all this stuff until I'm blue in the face, until I'm convinced that every single person in this building is a believer, and even then I will continue to preach it. Right, so I can see some of our eyes kind of roll in the back of our heads whenever we hear this kind of stuff, but I do it for a reason, because I know not everyone in here is a believer. But the wages of sin is death. Let that sink in. Whenever you sin against God, that is an act of rebellion. In the words of R.C. Sproul, that is an act of cosmic treason. Right? You have sinned against the king of the universe who created you and does everything good for you, and you would spit in his face and give him the finger and say, I'm going to be God. You are not my king. I am my king. That's why the apostle says the wages of sin is death, because sin is atrocious. Not only does the apostle Paul say this, but in the book of Genesis, God himself says to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit from this tree. On the day you eat it, you shall die. Right? We know that that is a foreshadowing of spiritual death, but that's also the reason why human beings have to physically die as well. We're born sinners. We sin, therefore we must die. So I want to lay this before you. 
did God kill Adam and Eve in the instance that they sinned? No, death became the penalty for them. They both eventually had to die. But consider the grace of God that they sinned against him. And again, I'm thinking of something R.C. Sproul said. And he said, and they lived. And not only that day, but they lived the rest of their lives. (laughs) Which I always thought was a funny sentence. It is a grace that we have lived this long. Everyone in this room has sinned. Everyone in this room was born a sinner, and we have all sinned actually ourselves. It is a grace from God, considering that sin demands death as a punishment, that we have lived this long. It's grace that you could come this evening and hear the gospel proclaimed to you that you might flee death. God is justified at any time to take any person in this world out of this world. Again, because we're sinners, right? So just right off the rip, this text reminds us of the severity of sin because Pharaoh's rebellion resulted in death for people. Right? Sin kills everything. Why do you think we have war? Why do you think that there are murderers? Why, do you, why is there a hundred thousand, someone who owns a $100,000 car and someone starving to death in the same city? Sin. Why are relationships broken? Why do people hate one another? Sin. Sin not only uh, deserves uh, our, or we not only deserve death for sin, but sin actually infiltrates everything and kills everything and brings destruction to everything. That's why God hates it. And here we see a demonstration of that wrath from God. And so that's why death, I would argue. But then, if you, and I know a lot of you guys are thinking, it's not just death. Why the firstborn? Right? How, is, how is that just, that God would kill the firstborn in all the households of Egypt? I'll lay this out there. God has given them fair warning. I know that I sound really heartless right now, but Exodus 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, the Bible says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Warning has been given. This is actually justice from God. Whenever we read this, we think this is like actually a tad ironic. You won't let Israel, my firstborn, go, so I will strike your firstborn, Pharaoh. This is what God's saying. But this isn't just Pharaoh's firstborn. This is the firstborn of all Egypt. And again, we, we tend to think, you know, that's kind of jacked up, that he, God would take out the firstborn of all of Egypt. But I would remind you that in Exodus chapter 2, we're told that, all of the people in Egypt had played a hand in the slaughter of Israel's male babies. At first, it was just the midwives of the Hebrews who were told, if you see a male child be born, you'd throw them in the Nile and let them drown. And the Hebrew midwives refused to do it. So then Pharaoh gave a command to all the people in Egypt to go and have these babies drowned when they find them. And the Bible says the people complied, and they did it. So this is just. This is just that he would do this. This, this plague also, on, on a somewhat lighter note, but it's still kind of dark. This, think about this. This is proof that God loves his people furiously. Right? Matt Chandler talks about this. You guys should check him out sometime. He always talks about, in order for you to love something, you must have wrath as well. He talks about his daughter being born. He said, whenever I saw my daughter for the first time, I knew that I loved her more than anything, and I'd kill somebody if they messed with her. He says, you won't let my firstborn son go. I love my firstborn Israel so much. I love my people so much that I will destroy you if you keep them in slavery. This is the love that God has for you if you're a believer. He loves you furiously. And the Bible says that at the end, on the judgment day, that all who oppressed and opposed God and his people, he will tread on like a wine press until the blood flows as high as the belly of a horse. 
God loves his people furiously. And I think we can take some comfort in that. But how does Pharaoh's sin warrant death in every home? I think the answer is found in this concept called headship. Right? Which, this might be a new piece of theology for some of you guys. Um, it's this idea that one person can represent a group of people. Right? Pharaoh, being the king of Egypt, is the head of Egypt. Right? So that's how Pharaoh, um, his sin can warrant the death of every home because he is the head. Right? And we all, we all understand headship already pretty much. Right? We got any sports fans in here? I mean, I'm not, but like anyone... Thanks, Nige. Appreciate you. You're the only one participating. You guys are terrible. Um, right? But in, in sports, right, you see one football player on defense go off sides and cross the line of scrimmage before the ball is snapped. And what happens? Does he get penalized? No, the whole team gets penalized. Right? We see that in sports all the time. So we already understand this idea of headship that one person can represent more than one, uh, more than one person. Right? You can represent a whole team. Um, but this is actually a biblical concept too. Right? Romans chapter 5 tells us that Adam is the representative of mankind. Or in theology, they say Adam is the federal head of all of man. That Adam represented us when he sinned in the Garden of Eden. Because the Bible says through one man, Adam, sin entered the world for all sinned. Right? So Adam's guilt for sin is imputed to us. Just like Pharaoh's guilt for sin, along with the Egyptians' actual guilt themselves, is imputed onto the Egyptian. Right? That's how Pharaoh's sin warrants death in every home. And I know some of us are thinking that that is unjust, that God would impute the guilt of one man onto the rest of the people. But I would argue this, just a point. If you think that that's unjust, that God would let one person represent a group of people and impute their sin onto them, then you have a problem with the gospel as well. Because also in Romans chapter 5, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is the second Adam and becomes the representative and federal head for all of those who believe on him. So that what Christ did is now credited to sinners like you and me who put their faith in Jesus. So if you have a problem with headship, and I'm not saying that there's not some struggles there, but if you outright reject headship, then you must outright reject the gospel because Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, is the head of the church. So if you think that's unfair, I'll just lay this before you. You don't want fair. Fair results in justice. If everyone gets to represent themselves instead of having a federal head in Christ, then you go to hell if you represent you. You don't want fair. You don't want justice. You want mercy from God. You want a new federal head. You don't want to be represented by Adam, and we're all born represented by Adam. You want represented by Christ through faith in him. All right, so now that we got all that out of the way, right? Good times, right? Verse 5 in this passage. I just wanted to cover that stuff because if you're like me and you're thinking those questions, you're not going to listen to me for the rest of the sermon, right? So I just wanted to cover some of those things, how this is actually just that God would kill the firstborn in every home because of Pharaoh's rebellion. I just want to lay that out there. But verse 5 tells us that this plague is all-encompassing. Right? I almost skipped over this somehow. I don't know. That it's going to go through every single home without exception, from Pharaoh to like the slave girl who like just grinds flour all day long to the firstborn of the cattle. Everyone in Egypt, every home, not one home will be unaffected. So I want you to consider this. The Israelites live in Egypt. Every home in Egypt, and the Israelites live there as well. No one is exempt from the judgment of God, even his people. No one is exempt from God's judgment. I think that this is a good reminder to us that, like Paul says in Romans chapter 1 through 3, that God's judgment is coming against the whole entire world and that everyone will have to stand before God and give an account that no one gets to escape this judgment from God. And that all will be found guilty because all have broken God's law. 
Right? So don't ever forget that. Again, don't just check this box and move on saying, yes, I understand the wrath of God is coming. Like, try to let that stuff sink in. Because in, in really getting a grasp of that, that God's judgment is coming against me and you because of our actual sin and our imputed sin, that we have a great need. We need a great Savior. That's what, that's what, I think that's what Moses is trying to paint, that the Israelites need a great Savior because the judgment is coming against them as well as the Egyptians. But then verse 7 in this passage tells us something astounding in light of the judgment of God coming to every household. God says, not a dog will come up against Israel. Either man or beast. No one is going to come up against Israel as he's bringing this judgment. He says, I'm going to make a distinction between my people and the people that belong to Pharaoh. He says, Israel is going to be rescued from this plague and Egypt will not. Right now, why would God distinguish between one group of sinners and another? He shouldn't. Should he? But why would God say, I'm going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt? Grace. It's the grace of God that he says he will make a distinction between one group of sinners and another. Purely grace. God made a covenant with Abraham by grace and swore by himself that he would protect these people and give them these promises. And he made that covenant with Abraham because he made a covenant with Eve that he would send a Messiah to save the world. All because he made a covenant within the Godhead called the covenant of redemption. Right? It's a covenant with himself. He promised to himself that he would give grace to these sinful people. It's all an act of grace. And he's going to be faithful to himself. Right? So I want you to, to consider Israel right, in this. That God said he's going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Often we think of the Israelites as innocent slaves. Right? Like, it's, it's, at least I do whenever I think about Israel being in bondage to Egypt. We think of them as innocent slaves deserving of rescue. And that's not true. They're not. There's no such thing as an innocent person. I want you to think about this. They're in Egypt because of the sins of their forefathers. Right? Again, God sovereignly used the sin. We saw in the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his 11 brothers, and that kicked the ball that led all of the Israelites into Egypt. So they're there because of the sin of their forefathers. Many of these Israelites have become pagan. Right? Not only that, rather just keep adding to the list of the things that the Israelites have done so far. Many of them have become pagan. They're there because of the sins of their forefathers. They have complained against Moses, the prophet of God, which is essentially they are complaining against God. Later on, they will complain against God himself whenever they're in the wilderness. They're going to sin just a lot. If you're reading the Old Testament, just Israel screws up a lot, which like we rep, like Israel kind of represents us, right? Because we're just always botching it, right? And yet God will save them. In spite of the fact that a lot of them have become pagan and all this stuff, God's going to save them. Why? Because he loves them. God loves them. They're his firstborn son. And why does he love them? Because he just loves them. <laughs> like seriously, like that's it. To the praise of his glorious grace is what the Bible says. That's why God loves people. Because there is nothing in these Israelites that is worth loving. They're sinners. They've transgressed his law. Right? So I want to kick this to us. Believer, if you're here and you're a Christian, God loves you. Not because you're worthy. 
but because He is gracious. We add nothing to God. He is perfect. That's what it means to be perfect, because you can't add to Him. We give nothing to Him that He doesn't already own. And yet, He desires to love us and show us mercy and grace. The best way that I can kind of explain this is, I have a niece named Natalie. She's the cutest kid in here. I'm sorry, parents, but she really is. I don't have any kids, but I got Natalie, right? That kid does nothing for me. Sorry, Amber. Right? That kid does nothing for me at all. She actually rebels against me more than anything. I'll say, hey, Natalie, come here and give me a kiss. And she'll smack me in the face and take off running. Like, I'm not kidding. That is a regular thing that that kid does. She rebels against me. She'll do the opposite. I'll, come here, Natalie. And she takes off running down the aisle at the store. Right? She does not listen to me most of the time. She rebels against me. But I would die for that child. I would die for that little girl. And I loved her since before she was born. Just because I love her in my own being. And she adds nothing to me. God saves us by grace. God does not save us by our pleasing Him or by our obedience to Him. It's not by our own worth or our own significance that we're saved. God saves us by grace alone through Christ's worth alone. Nothing in us. It's a sheer act of grace. I want us to understand that. It's nothing that you've done or I have done. It's purely because he loves us in himself because there's nothing lovable in us. We're wretches. But as we're going to pop on into chapter 12, chapter 12 is going to tell us by what method God is going to save Israel from death and judgment. Right, but before we go into this, I want to get something straight, right? Because there's an old heresy that's become popular here in like the last 50 years or so in America. God's going to show us grace in chapter 12. He's promised it in chapter 11. Now he's going to show us grace in chapter 12. Know this. Jesus Christ does not oppose the Father. Okay, because we're going to talk about Jesus a lot here. They have identical wills. Both have wrath. The Bible actually tells us that Jesus Christ is going to be the one who judges people on the final day and casts people into hell and admits other people into heaven. Right? Jesus is the one who judges. Right? God is not mean, right? And like a lesser kind of God who's just a, a, a petty jerk. And Jesus isn't a, a nice hippie from California, right? That's not the case. I say that. Because the Godhead loves you dearly, and I want you to know that. The Son is not pitted against the Father in love for you. John 3.16 says, God loved the world and sent His Son. Right? So Jesus was sent by the Father because of love. Right? So just know that. It's not that God has a lot of wrath for you, but Jesus is going to give you grace. It's the entire Godhead has wrath for you, and the entire Godhead is going to give you grace. Right? So I just wanted to make that distinction real quick. But Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read 1 through 14 and then 21 through 28. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. 
You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all of the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you... A memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So God tells us how he is going to give grace to sinners in this passage, how he is going to ransom and rescue and save sinful Israel, right? And the reason why there must be a method is because God is holy, he is just, he can't just look away from sin, because if he's just to forgive sin without any kind of satisfaction being made for the sin, then he is no longer holy, because he's been violated, and he just looks the other way. Likewise, he's no longer just, he's no longer a good judge, if he can just look the other way on sin and say, I forgive you. His wrath must be satisfied, justice must be served, right? That's why there must be a method for him giving us grace, And chapter 12 tells us that it will be by the sacrifice of a lamb that God gives grace to his people. Cats out of the bag. The lamb foreshadows Jesus in the biggest way possible. John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, he sees Jesus coming and for the first time recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, Behold the lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. I know I just did that in King James, and there are some things you can't erase from your childhood, all right? I'm just throwing that out there. I saw my sister laughing at me whenever I said taketh. But nevertheless, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sin. So this lamb is a huge representative of Jesus. So what does God say about this lamb? God gives specifics. It can't just be any lamb, right? Not any lamb will do. There, it must be, it's very, he's very specific. It must be a male, 
And it must be a yearling, and it must be without blemish, which means it must be a male. A yearling means it's in the prime of its life, and it's to be completely perfect. Nothing wrong with it. No broken bones, no bruises, no cuts, no scrapes, no nothing. It has to be completely perfect. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So let's just consider the person of Jesus for a second. He's male, obviously. He was 33 years old, cut down in the prime of his life, as I believe is Isaiah chapter 53 says that about Jesus, cut down in his prime. He's a yearling, a male, and he is spotless, without blemish. He is sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus to become sin, who knew no sin. Right? The, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ was tried and tempted and tested in every single way that we are, and yet was without sin. So Jesus was totally sinless. And here's the importance of that sinlessness. If Christ would have had one sin to his name, God would have punished him himself and sent him to hell when he died. Christ would not have been raised from the dead, and you and I, our faith in Jesus would be futile if Jesus had committed just one sin. Because then we would, then we would be maybe under Christ's headship, but then Christ would be a sinner. Right, so the sinlessness of Jesus is so important because God will accept nothing short of perfection to atone for the imperfections of mankind. This is proof that we can't save ourselves. You and I cannot atone for our sins because we are sinners. We're not perfect. We're not a lamb without blemish. We're not completely perfect. We can't atone for our own imperfections. Right? Not through self-help, not through just being a better person, not through you know, new year, new you. None of that garbage is going to fix it. You have to have a perfect, spotless lamb in your place. You and I can't fix ourselves. We need a perfect representative. We need a perfect lamb, and we have that in Jesus. But the second thing that this passage said is that this lamb is to be slaughtered so that the firstborn may live. This lamb has to get its throat cut and its blood poured out into a basin. Totally slaughtered in order that the firstborn may live. And this is one of the biggest uh, foreshadowings that God... He gives us this clear concept of substitution, right? Life for life. I'll trade one life for another. I will accept one thing in your place so that you don't die. You can kill something else, right? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right, Ransom means to redeem something, to buy something back. He's saying, my life for yours. That's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus came to give his life for ours and ransom us from the wrath of God. Right, the suffering servant passage in Isaiah talks about um, he, he, was, he was bruised for our transgressions, right, for our iniquities. And by his stripes, you and I are healed. And so again, Jesus in our place. Romans chapter 3 tells us that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, the one who satisfies God's wrath in our place and redeems us. So justice is met in Christ as our substitute. Right? So just know this. Without God's grace in substitution, we have no hope. If God will not allow another to be punished in our place, then we have to pay for our own sin. And again, we're not a perfect representative in sacrifice. You don't want to pay for your own wrongdoings. If you do, you go to hell. This is grace from God that he would say, a substitute in your place. But it's not enough that the lamb be merely slain, is it? That's not the end. He says, kill a lamb. No, that's not the end of it. He says, the lamb, if the the lamb is just slain, it has no effect for the people. 
Something has to be done with the blood of the lamb. The, the lamb's blood is to be collected and applied to the homes of the Israelites. Right? And, and, and this is going to make a lot of us uncomfortable. It's this concept of particular atonement. This lamb's blood must be applied to households. Right? So the lamb's blood did nothing for those whom the blood was not applied to their homes, did it? Well, we're going to see that in a minute, but I assume you already know the story. It did nothing for those whom it was not applied. It was not enough that the lamb was slain. The blood must be applied. So this lamb that was killed was not killed for the unbelieving Egyptians. Right, so here's the most controversial thing I've probably ever said. Jesus did not die for the world as we think of the world. He didn't. That's not what the Bible teaches. His sacrifice is only effective for those who believe on Jesus. He did not die for the world. I hate it whenever I get in a conversation with an unbeliever and I'm trying to tell them the gospel and they're just hostile to God and I can see that in their lives and by their own admission that they don't follow Jesus. And then I say, well, what do you know about Jesus Christ? And they say, well, Jesus died for our sins. And it's everything in me. I just want to say, no, he, no, he didn't. He didn't die for our sins. He died for my sins and the sins of everyone who would repent and believe. And you're not in that category because you have not repented and believed. So Christ's death is of no use for you because you don't believe. You don't follow Him. The blood must be applied to you through faith. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. John 3.16. I am totally aware that that is in the Bible. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The Greek literally says... He gave His only Son that all the believing should not perish. Jesus Christ did not die for those who would not believe. Not a drop of the Savior's blood will be spilled in vain. He did not die for those who would not come to faith. But know this, Christ's blood must be applied to us by faith. Right? I, I would argue that's what that hyssop branch dipped in the blood Represents It must be applied to us by faith. And this also, the Bible teaches us, is a work of the Holy Spirit, right? It's a work of regeneration, right? So our faith is a gift, according to the Apostle Paul in, Roman, or in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, by grace you are saved through faith. And this is a gift that no man may boast, right? The gift, meaning the grace and the faith, is a gift from God. So your faith is a gift because of the grace of God and the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in you to draw you to faith in the Savior so that the blood would be applied. The reason why I'm drawing that out is I want you to know that if you're a Christian, all of this has been done by God for you. You did nothing. You didn't have the capacity in yourself to believe and apply this blood. God had to apply it to you. It's all a work of grace. So what is it about the blood, though, that is so important? Right? Because that seems somewhat barbaric, right? Or maybe not barbaric. Maybe you're like, I just don't see the correlation between how blood saves, right? Like how blood and salvation go hand in hand. Hebrews chapter 9 explains this for us, verses 18 through 22. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The author of Hebrews tells us that the blood purifies things. That Moses, after he reads all the commands of God to the people of Israel, I believe it's in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, he, he, he sprinkles blood on the people, and he sprinkles the blood on, on the, the temple, or it's not the temple, it's the tabernacle, and all the things that are used in the, in the tabernacle to purify them, to make them holy, and set them apart for God's presence and use and worship of God. Right. So in the Bible, blood purifies. Right. So know this, blood doesn't just keep the punishment away, but it actually makes things pure and holy. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Right? So the blood of Christ must be applied because we must be purified of our unrighteousness. Again, this tells us that we can't fix ourselves, not even by our obedience, not by anything that we do. Consider this, a dirty man surrounded by mud cannot make himself clean. That's you and I, surrounded by the world, the sinful world, and our own sins and our own sinful desires, and we are dirty, surrounded by mud. We need lead to water to wash. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us to Christ so that we may be washed in the blood of Christ and cleansed from our unrighteousness. Because blood purifies. The blood was applied to the doorpost to purify it in order for God to stand guard, right? I know the word Passover, he says he's going to pass over. not contradicting the Bible on that. But the actual Hebrew word, I think it's Pesah, is how you say it. Um, actually, it means a little bit deeper than just to pass over. It means to stand guard, defend, or protect. Right? So in order for God to stand guard at this doorway, that blood needed to be applied in order to purify that doorway so that God would stand there and keep the destroyer angel out. So the doorpost needed to be made holy and clean. It needed to be made fit for God's presence. And in the same way, the blood of Christ purifies us. If you're a believer, the Bible declares over and over again that you are now holy. You're not perfect, but the Bible says that you are unleavened bread, like yeast representing sin. You're unleavened bread now. You're holy. You're without blemish in the eyes of God. You are a spotless, pure, sparkling bride in the eyes of Jesus because you've been washed by his blood. That's what the Bible teaches us. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit can now dwell in us. We've been fit for God the Spirit's presence and that we will be spared from the wrath to come. So just a side note, therefore, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, You're unleavened, now be unleavened. So God declares this about you. So stop being leavened bread. Stop being sinful. Stop. I thought we can never stop being sinful. Begin to try to put to death your sin. Because God has already declared that you're holy because of the blood of Christ. But the blood not only equals purification, but it equals forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So now mercy can pour out from God. And can pour out because justice has been served. Because of a substitute in our place. And the blood of that substitute has been applied to us. Let's finish this story. Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So what happened? What we just read. First, God did everything he said he would. Did he not? He executed judgment on the unbelieving, bloodless Egyptians and spared the believing, blood-covered Israelites. Just note this if you're not a Christian. God makes no idle threats. When he says his wrath is coming against the whole world and you will stand in judgment before him, he means it. And likewise, if you're a Christian, take heart in this. God makes no idle threats, nor does he make empty promises. The blood spared the Israelites. We will be spared from the wrath to come. But pushing deeper than that, right? What is the result of this judgment, substitution, and Passover? Hear me. This is, this is, this is the good part, right? This is the climax of the whole thing to me. God saves Israel from death, and they go free. The Israelites go free, and they're free to go and worship their God. Pharaoh says, get out of here. Go worship your God. I'm done with you. Now know this, the Israelites are going to still have to run from Pharaoh. They're still going to have to cross the Red Sea, and they're still going to have to go to the wilderness. Their journey is not over. They are going to fail miserably at times. They are going to sin and rebel and complain. These people have been saved from death, but they are far from perfect. But nevertheless, they are free. They are never again under the bondage of Pharaoh. No matter what happens, they're never again under the bondage of Pharaoh. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is what the apostle says. We are free men. If you're here and you're a Christian, you are free. You are free from sin and its power and its penalty. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer who you once were. You have been set free by God's grace through faith in Christ's sacrifice that you may worship the God of your rescue. You're no longer a slave. I can't hammer that in enough. You don't have to obey your flesh anymore. You're no longer a slave to the law and its penalty. You've been set free from the one who went under the law for you obeyed the law perfectly, and then died and suffered the penalty that you and I deserve. We are free. We're not just free from hell, though. We're actually free to serve our God. We are now slaves to righteousness. So we may have, listen, we may have much to go through. Undoubtedly, we will. We may have much to go through, much suffering ahead, many hard times lay ahead of us. There is much sin for those of us who are in Christ that we are going to have to fight against and flee from. But know this, you and I will never be slaves again. Because he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And you're no longer, ser- you're no longer a servant, but a son. That's what Jesus says. We'll never be slaves again, and by God's grace, we will make it to the promised land that he has promised us with him. So how does this all point to Jesus? I hope you've been seeing. I think I've been laboring the point enough. This whole thing is about Christ. But for the sake of form, I have two additional thoughts that I thought were awesome, especially considering that we celebrate communion every week. 
The Passover marks a new era. Right, the Passover in Israel marks a new era. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, this marks a new time for you. There's to be a new calendar. You're going to mark this by. It's a new calendar year, which tells us that God's work results in a new time. Again, with the Passover with the Israelites. So for us, Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection was the final Passover of all time. Right? It's no coincidence that Jesus' like Good Friday falls on Passover. Right? Uh, or at least it did that day. I know their calendar moves around a bit. But what does that tell us? Jesus being our final Passover ushers in a new era in history. This is what we refer to as the new covenant. That we're now not living under the old covenant under the penalty of the law, but we're now living in the new covenant of grace through faith in Christ. And not only that, but God has done something greater in Christ. Instead of many continuous sacrifices offered up every year at Passover, we have had one sacrifice for all time. Christ died once for all sin of those who would believe. And not only that, but God has given us better promises in Christ too. Under the Old Covenant, they were promised a nation, a physical nation, a physical land, and blessing of the Messiah to come. And now what do we have under the New Covenant? We have a nation. We have an invisible nation called the church. It's much larger than Israel ever could have been. We have a much better land promised to us. We have heaven. right? Charles Spurgeon called it, we have the celestial city that we're to go to. And we don't have a promise of blessing. We have Christ himself under this new covenant. But not only that, new covenant means a new celebration. right? The old covenant with Passover, um, they celebrated Passover every year to remember the work of God to save Israel. And the church, right? the new Israel, under the new covenant, we have the Lord's table now. Or we have communion now. Where we celebrate, again, just like the Israelites, we celebrate God's work in Christ. So both of them celebrate God's work in passing over, protecting, and setting free the people of God. So what we do whenever we come to the Lord's table to receive communion that we're going to do here later, we celebrate God's victory over sin and Satan and death on our behalf. And we celebrate our freedom that comes in Christ. There's beautiful things. I don't want us to miss that whenever we take communion. This is a celebration meal. This is a victory meal. We celebrate what God has done on our behalf. So what do we do with this? Our application is often, you know, in light of this, now go and do. But I don't have that this evening. And I thank God for passages like this. I think the point of application for us is be still and know who your God is. God has shown us great grace and a great sacrifice and great love for unworthy, sinful people. Last week we talked about fear God and obey Him. And this week it's be amazed by the grace of that same God. He's loved you though you were unlovable. That He gave you a substitute, a perfect, spotless priest in your place. I want you to see that God has done everything necessary to save you. Then I want you to come to the Lord's table this evening with joy and thanksgiving and a deeper understanding of what God has accomplished by Jesus, the conquering lamb who was slain for you. And know this, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, chapter 12, verses 43 through 49, God gives law on what to do whenever a foreigner wants to take the Passover. He says, have them circumcised and bring them in. And let them take Passover with you if they want to sojourn with you and not be a foreigner any longer. 
what he's saying is circumcision was how you entered the old covenant. The Bible says faith is how we enter the new covenant now. So I want you to know if you're here and you're an unbeliever, repent of your sin and turn to Christ and avoid wrath. Join the people of God and celebrate this meal with us. You're not excluded. You exclude yourself by your own obstinance and rebellion. But God is inviting you in. So to sum this whole thing up, Listen, always and unceasingly, daily, for the rest of your life, trust in the blood of the Lamb who was slain for you. It's the only hope that you have. Know that God loves you in Christ simply because He does. All is of grace, and we are eternally grateful. Give all praise to the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ, our Passover lamb. Thank you for our freedom. Thank you for turning us from rebels into sons. Holy Spirit, please draw someone to faith in you. Help us to see that we can't fix ourselves. Help us to recognize that no matter how far we've fallen, how badly that we've messed up, just like the Israelites did with their paganism, that you invite us in because you're gracious and because you love us. God, press that on our hearts. Help us to enjoy you and savor the grace that you've given us in Christ. We thank you for everything you've done and everything you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.